Hi, this is Derry Graham from Honeymoon Suite, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I know you started off with the piano. Um, is that just because your parents thought you had you should learn how to play the piano, or how did the piano come into your life? Um, my my dad was uh, was um, uh, played piano. My dad was a doctor, um, but he absolutely loved playing the piano and playing his classics. So um, he would be a doctor during the day, and then he would come home at night. And we had this beautiful uh, black uh, uh, grand piano in the house. And uh, he would come home and play the Beethoven and the Chopin and the Mozart and, and all that. So as, as little kids, we, we would go to sleep at night and hear the piano downstairs because that's when he would play. So I've heard those songs uh, many, many times in, over my head. And when I hear one of those cl- Beethoven or Mozart classics, it always reminds me of being a child because I recognize the, uh, you know, the melodies. But um, yes, he wanted to enroll us in lessons. And of course, piano was the, the first instrument uh, that, that all us kids had to take the piano lessons of uh, whether we liked it or not. Um, but I'm glad I did because uh, it taught me how to read music and my it's, it gives you a great understanding of any instrument. And I didn't like piano at first, but I kind of took to it and um, I'm glad I did. Do you still play at all? Oh yeah, all the time. I, I absolutely do. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, that I play keyboards. I've written, you know, songs on keyboards. I've written, like, like, what does it take? I wrote on a keyboard. I don't play tons of keyboards, but I got away for, from it for a long time in the 80s since I was just into rock guitar. But um, in the last 10, 15 years, I've gotten back to playing a piano because I have one in my house now. And it's just a beautiful thing to have. And I do keyboards on the, you know, on the Honeymoon Suite records. I do a lot of the keyboards as well at home, the synth parts and that, I just find that fascinating and it's fun. Okay, so how did the little piano player become a guitar player? Well, because uh, playing guitar is way cooler than being a, a keyboard player. You, you did you see something though? Piano. So did you see something or somebody that you thought, well, that's what I want to be? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just growing up, I think, I think that uh, how old was I when I started playing guitar? It just, uh, I was fascinated by um, just guitar players, you know, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. And I remember, um, what did I see? There used to be this show on CBC a long time ago. And uh, I forget what it was called, but it was out of Winnipeg. It might have even been the original, you know, the Guess Who members, because they had a TV show or something. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I remember oh, they would come on every week on the CBC and it was like a music variety show, but they had this rock band that, that played all the, the cover songs. And I remember the guitar player had this big 335 and I thought that was the coolest thing I, I'd ever seen. And that, like, I, I just decided I, I really, really wanted to play guitar. So I made a deal with my dad. He didn't want me to, but I said, he said, look, if you can keep your piano lessons up, we'll get you a guitar and you can kind of play, play around with that. But he didn't think I was serious. How long did it take until you thought you were serious? Well, <laughs> about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I just wanted to be a guitar player. It's not like I, uh, I saw Elvis on Ed Sullivan or anything. I don't know what it was. I think I just saw guys on TV or maybe it was somebody I saw on TV or I saw, maybe I saw a rock band or something. And I just thought gu- guitar was just the, the coolest 
thing ever, and I, I, I wanted, I wanted to play it. And and did the instrument come easy to you? It did, it did, and partly because of my um, my piano uh, training, and I also had a great um, <clears throat> first teacher too, who was like he was also a doctor, and he was a, a doctor friend of my dad's, but he was kind of like a bohemian hippie type doctor. He was the <laughs> coolest guy. He played accordion and piano and guitar, and he lived right right behind us at our house, like we were neighbors. So I just walk over to his basement and bring my guitar, teach me the, the goofy, you know, uh, row the boat ashore stuff. He taught me like House of the Rising Sun, and and he had Jimi Hendrix albums and Santana albums. So it was uh, he got it, you know. So I was I was interested from the start because I was learning learning the the cool songs, and he would have chord charts and from learning piano and notes, I kind of transferred what I knew in the keyboard to guitar. It was much easier to know where all the notes were. Wow. Um, at what point did you think this is what you wanted to be, a musician? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. I think as a, as a kid, like I was, um, I, I'm not a big person. I was a really little kid in high school, so I, I didn't play any sports. I wasn't a jock. I wasn't anything cool like that. So. I I played guitar instead because you know th that got you girls if you're if you're a guitar player then you know the the girls would like you so I um I I did that and I I tried got little high school bands together and the high school used to have these variety shows every year and that was like the pinnacle of my year to get to get in the variety show somehow uh, with another person or with the little band I was with, I felt like a rock star if we got uh, a place in the variety show because at the end of it, you'd have the, the big show night and the whole auditorium would be full of all the parents and it was like playing to hundreds of people. So I think I got the, uh, I got the bug early. But you went through, I guess like everybody else, you, you didn't start at the top. You went through some difficult times. Um, you start, I think you were in a band called Stitch and you did a single at that point? Oh, wow, you've done your homework. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Any idea? Can you give me an idea of what you had, like what you were hoping to achieve with that band or or with that single? Um, wow, this, you talking about the Stitch single? Yeah, at that time of your life. Um, well, it was to me, it was all about getting getting in a band which i thought was was the coolest thing i knew some guys and i knew a, a guy a friend of mine he was a drummer and his parents would let us rehearse in the basement and we had a another guy that played guitar so we would just go over there and make all all, all kinds of noise and then from that <laughs> eventually as we get a little bit older i started meeting different guys in high school who were uh more uh more musicians, more serious, more accomplished musicians. And then around the end of high school, 16 or 17, I, I had that band which um, which had one name and then we called it Stit. And at the, about the same time we were playing just some, uh, you know, gigs around town and we, we got like a manager, a little, uh, a local manager and he had some connections in Toronto and, um, he decided like uh, that that we we would be a good band and he wanted to develop us into to an original band and i was starting to write songs so it was just natural progression it was like one thing after the other where we were just a little cover band and then we were writing our own songs and then this manager guy got us up into a studio in toronto to cut a single 
And amazingly enough, his connection was with Jack Richardson at Nimbus 9. Wow. Yeah, somehow he had that connection. And I'd heard of Nimbus 9. And so we went up there to cut, uh, to cut like this was actually our second single, which was called Julie. I don't know if that's the one you're talking about. But we, we went up there. And the Bay City Rollers were actually recording there at that time. They were doing an album. So we would go in during the day because they would come in at night and there'd be all these stuffed animals and stuff all over uh, the studio, you know, from their fans. But it was my first taste of seeing what real rock, you know, real rock stardom was like, seeing seeing the, the craziness around that band. But we went in there in the afternoon and I remember meeting Jack Richardson and... Um, we, we actually cut a single and I knew, I knew that there was something that this wasn't just no little demo studio. I was kind of in awe because I knew that the guess who had recorded there and Alice Cooper and I'm like, shit, I, I'm actually in the same studio. And I'm like, this feels really exciting. Did you not go to school for like recording, studying music or music recording? Yeah, I did. Uh, after high school, I, um, I actually went to university first for about four months and I said, this is not working for me. So I quit and I got a job. And then I went on the road for a year with my band up in Northern Ontario, just cause I, I didn't know what to do. And then I applied at Fanshawe college in London. Cause when I found out that there was actually a, you know, a, a college that had music and recording, um, that was kind of like, I came half, you know, I met my dad halfway, of course, being a doctor, he wanted me to go to medical school or be a lawyer right. or something and go to a university, but that wasn't going to happen. But if I told him like, dad, I will go to college, but I really want to go to this recording production course. So um, we kind of uh, met halfway there and, and I got into Fanshawe and I spent about two and a half years there and it was, it was amazing. I loved it. Did you think that that was a possibility to go into studio production? Well, that's what I went there for. You would either sign up for engineering, which is all the technical stuff, and I really right. wasn't into that, and production was more the artistic side. So, oh, hell yeah. I wanted to, like, right from my first early days with, with my early bands in St. Catharines, I'd actually recorded two singles um, in different studios, the second one being in Toronto. So I'd already got the studio bug at that point. I was just uh, in awe when I was in a recording studio. So to go to Fanshawe, and to learn how to work. And at that time is one inch tape on a, like an eight track, uh, you know, right. Neve console or whatever, but still it was amazing for me. And uh, that's where uh, I, could, I could learn to write songs. I could get a little uh, musicians together and go in the studio and stay in there all night if I wanted and cut songs. As a matter of fact, that's where I wrote New Girl now when I was at uh, Fanshawe <clears throat> College. Wow. Okay, so when you wrote that, did you know that it would be a special song? No. Not at all. I, I remember um, writing that in, uh, I think it was in the kitchen of the house I was living when living in with these, you know, other guys that were in I was in college with. And um, I was really into uh, the Cars. Right. Had just come out at that time and the first and the second album, especially the first Cars album. I absolutely loved it. I loved Elliot Easton's playing and, and the production on that. So I was kind of influenced by that, you know, and the, and the coming new wave revolution and all that. So um New, I just New Girl Now was written pretty quickly, as a lot of kind of big songs some sometimes are, and without a lot of thought. And I actually demoed it at at at, um, at school. Did I know it was going to be a big hit? No, I thought it was kind of quirky and had some neat stuff, but it really didn't uh, jump out at me. Okay, and you also playing in a new wave band, were you not? 
at some point before honeymoon. So was did that did that band play that or did you present it to that band at all? You know, that's a good question. I don't think you did because um, Steve Blimke and the Reason was the new wave band, and that again came out of Fanshawe as well. That was actually a project. Uh, one of the producers, so one of the guys there, it was a project. He put that band together at uh, Fanshawe with Steve Blimke, who was the singer, and some other guys. One of them being Dave Betts, who is now the you know the drummer in in Honeymoon Suite. Um, they started that as a project, and then when their guitar player left um, and school finished, they all moved to Toronto, and I moved to Toronto, and I started uh, I started working. I auditioned and. Um, I got into Steve Blimke and the Reason, so I was the guitar player, and uh, it was kind of punk. Punk and new wave were really, really happening uh, at that point. You know, XTC and and the Police and everything else were were coming out. So that was the way to go. And I've all, I always loved three piece. wasn't crazy about all the crazy fast kind of new wave pop punk stuff, but for me, it was another chance to uh, to make an album to record in Toronto and and be in a band that actually toured so it was another step along the way and then how did you wind up joining honeymoon suite well i did um with steve blimke we did one album called chasing paper tigers and that was done at Inter interchange in toronto um and actually kim mitchell played on that album uh, really? a little bit of trivia <laughs> there yeah um and uh that that band didn't last that long we did a few tours across Canada, played a bunch of dates, but then it just kind of fizzled out because there just wasn't the work there. So after that, I kind of kicked around Toronto looking for a gig, and I, I kept on playing with Dave and the bass player, Doug. After Steve left, the singer, we put a little three-piece together, a little cover band just to kind of work and play the, the clubs up and down Young Street and some other things. I mean, we were starving, man, and, and just all kind of living in the same house. But... I was determined I'm not going to move back to St. Catharines and call it quits because, uh, you know, I'm not going to go back there with my tail between my legs. I was determined to make it. So um, we did that for a little while. And then I was constantly calling, uh, you know, agents and managers. And I called our, our booking agent at that at one time. And I, I told him, uh, you know, I'd been in another band that, that, that kind of broke up. And I called him and, and I said, do you know any uh, of your bands, your cover bands that need a guitar player? And Johnny D had already started Honeymoon Suite about six months before that. And oddly enough, his guitar player was just quitting. So the, the booking agent knew Johnny really well, and he knew me well from other bands. He thought I would be a good fit. So he put Johnny and I together. I went and met him and, and auditioned, and, you know, bang. Wow. The rest is history. I mean, it just, we just, from, from the get-go, you know, when, I, when he opened his mouth and I heard him sing, it's like, man, this is it, because... Up to that point, I, I'd been looking for a singer. And, you know, every band, great band has got to have a great singer and a great front man. And it's a really hard thing to find. And uh, it's rare. And when I met Johnny, you know, good looking Italian guy with this beautiful voice, I, I knew that I could write the songs and he could sing them. And uh, that was the beginning of it. Can I ask you, when you decided that you weren't going to go back home and you were going to rough it out and you had this dream, do you, did you know what that dream was? Like, it was it just a matter of working and playing as much as possible, or did you have a dream of having hit albums and hit singles and all that? All of it, man. Like I just love, fascinated with rock and roll. Um, growing up in high school, you know, I mean, Deep Purple was one of my favorite bands, and I remember seeing them in Buffalo um, when they did the Burn tour, 
and I would go to Toronto and see these concerts. I would see David Bowie and Styx and Bob Seger and Genesis. And I just, I just and was fascinated. I couldn't get enough of rock and roll. And then I, I was in a band and I just, if there's any way that I could get out of St. Catharines and even move to Toronto and be in a band, to me, that would be rock stardom. And plus, uh, from, from early on, I, I love guitar, but I also wanted to be a songwriter because my favorite people were, were, song, were the songwriters and I was in love with the Beatles and just songs were fascinating to me and I wanted to write songs. How, how easy was that for you, writing songs? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to write crappy songs, but you, <laughs> you, you, know, you, you have to have the passion for it. And, and I did. And um, I would just, I don't know, every time I pick up the guitar, uh, I would probably write something because with me, all songs start with me just practicing, just picking up the guitar and noodling around. That's where the seeds of the ideas usually come from, just a riff or something. So uh, I could, I was doing that and I was writing this song and then it led to the next song and then I could get my band to play it. And then the fact that as soon as I was in a band that actually recorded a couple of my tracks, I knew that I had to keep doing that. And I think that happened on the, um, actually with Steve Blimke, I wrote a couple of songs for them, got recorded. And then with, um, uh, yeah, the second Steve Blimke album, I got three songs in that album. And after that, I realized that I, man, if I keep this up, I, I can do this. And I just want to keep going and I want to get in a band and I want to write the songs. Okay, so you write songs you, you guys wind up going on into a, a, a Q107 contest and, and winning that contest, I believe, with New Girl Now. Um, tell me about that. I know it's going back a ways and so much has happened since then, but tell me about winning that prize because that, I think, was the stepping stone to changing your life, right? It was. It was a very pivotal um, moment in, in, our, in our career. It was actually the beginning of our career with, with Honeymoon Suite. Um, Johnny and I had been together about a year and a half at that point. And from day one, we, as soon as I got in the band, we started rebuilding the band, we brought in a new drummer and a bass player and keyboard player. And once we had the guys that we wanted, we went up to Northern Ontario. We played six nighters for months and months and just got, got our sound and our shit together as a band and started putting the originals in the show. So, um, all the time looking for, you know, maybe a label to come out and see us or some opportunity, try and figure out how to get signed. So one thing a lot of the bands are doing every year is the Q107 Homegrown was pretty well known at that time. And everybody and his brother was trying to get a, you know, a demo in and get on that album. So we came home on a Sunday on a day off and uh, went to um, our producer's house. It was Tom Tremuth. And uh, cause we, you know, we'd been talking to him about working with us and did an eight track demo of um, New Girl Now and, and two other songs and sent it into Q107. And then the next day we went back to Sudbury. So um, a couple of weeks go by and we find out that Q107 wants to, you know, it's, it's making it to the finals and, uh, you know, long story short, it, it fit, you know, it got on the album. And at the end of the day, it won, it won that year. And that was huge because the song got on the radio and it instantly got reaction and uh, this brought the uh, record labels out to gigs. 
we had a manager at that point who started organizing that. He was very aggressive and he called all the labels and brought them out to, and we did showcases. And we got, you know, We of Canada came in and signed us as a result of that. Wow. Okay, so then they sign you, you release the first album, and the album does really well. So was that a surprise to you? Like, I don't, I don't know how one, you know, obviously one has to have confidence, one has to have a certain amount of ego to do what you do. But, you know, actually succeeding and having hit singles is not something... There's, there's more than just good songs involved. There's a lot of machinery that ha- makes it that happen. So when that happened, how what was it like for you? It was amazing. It was exciting. And, you know, no, I none of us ex- expected that. I just knew that we had a good band, we had a great singer, and I thought our songs were pretty good. And I was just, at that point, we got signed and we had New Girl now and a couple of others, but then it was like, Derry, we need, you know, four or five more songs for the album. So, you know, all the time that right after we got signed, we were still out on the road doing six nighters, getting ready to record. So I remember I Berea wrote Stay in the Light up there. And then another time we were in Sarnia, I wrote What Does It Take? That was for the second album. But I was just writing songs during the daytime in my my hotel room and just kind of banging them off. And it seemed to be a lot easier back then because it was just like stream of consciousness and these were quick kind of rock pop songs. They didn't have to be really deep and they were perfect for that album as, as a collection. So it's just timing, but you also have to remember that was that 1983 or so it was the beginning of the video age. Right. So much music and MTV were just beginning and exploding at that point, the whole video thing. So it's a lot of timing too. We had the right sound. We had the right look. We had a major label, and you know what? We had videos. That was so, so crucial. Much music got on board. You know, we did uh, New Girl Now. We did Stay in the Light, Wave Babies, and uh, I don't know, oh, Burning in Love. We did four videos, like bang, one after the other. And it, this instant success, it just drove the, the sales of the album because the kids could see us on TV because everybody went home and watched much music after school. So. Right. All of a sudden, they're seeing Honeyman Suite. It made us kind of like instant stars, you know, across the country, which you didn't have before. You just had radio. So that was instrumental in, in really driving the success right through the roof. So were you able to tour at a different level immediately? Um, pretty much. It, it got us out of the clubs. All of a sudden, we didn't have to be a cover band. We only had one album's worth, so you know we'd have to do our in a bit and a, and a set of sixty or seventy minutes. We didn't have enough songs, so we'd have to throw a cover in or maybe do a song twice. But as soon as we we got signed and the record came out, all of a sudden we you know we're opening for people. We opened, I remember, for Triumph. We opened for April Wine and Aerosmith, and all of a sudden we're in arenas opening, and it's like this is this is too too cool. And we would. Um, go out and do our own little shows. Now we're into, you know, some soft seaters and sort of headlining smaller shows. And then from that, the record got picked up by Warner Brothers in LA shortly after the it started to explode in Canada. And Warner Brothers put it out in the States. They got New Girl Now on MTV. And next thing you know, we're on a tour bus and we're supporting Jethro Tull across America, which was our first US tour. So, you know, it was a wonderful time of things it's just a whirlwind like 
one thing after the other happening, but all, all good things. I know that's good things, but do you feel pressure then? Like now you have hits, so now you got a next album to worry about. You, you have four hits, so do we have to, you know, live up to that standard? Yeah, well, me being the, the main writer, it was always in the back of my mind. I think the first part of it, we were just enjoying the success that we were just having a great time being this young band and, and having all this success and, and breaking out, playing arenas and da-da-da, being in Texas and being in Florida and places we never thought we would get to as a band anyways. So we enjoyed that for a while, but we knew at the end of the tour that everybody's going to be looking at Derry to come up with songs because now it's your second album and it's got to be better than the first. So yeah. I always had that in the back of my mind. But I just kept on doing what I always did, like in the bar band days, is I would spend my days in the hotel room or on the bus, and I'd write songs because I knew it was coming. And I tried to build up the catalog and just keep writing. Did you ever doubt yourself? Ha! <laughs> Every day. <laughs> no, because Austin, I, like, I just think, you know, you're, you're sitting there dreaming of being a, a, a musician full-time and having some success, and very quickly you... I mean, I, I think it's very quickly. I don't know if you saw it that way, because I know you put in some long hours and many years of touring not-so-great places, but when it happened, it happened pretty quickly. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't know if that's... If one could imagine that or if it's even realistic to think that they would have the success, the kind of success that you had. Um, was it... Was it... Did I ever doubt myself? Was that yeah. the question? Well... I think every songwriter is a bit of a, a bit of a neurotic, you know, we go, yeah, we just never think we're good enough, you know, and, and you have one hit and that's fine, but you're only as good as that last song. Um, of course, of course I had doubts, you know, it's, it's like kind of a blessing and a curse to, to do this, but I just, uh, I don't know. I just kept going and, and tried to, you know, you're trying to please everybody at that point. I'm just trying to come up with, with, with the best songs that, that I can. And don't forget, I'm also working with Johnny and our keyboard player uh, at the time, Ray Colburn, was a great writer. He wrote Feel It Again, you know, and he was kicking in some great material. So it's it's like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of pressure because once the success happens, you've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen, you know, too many. Everybody telling you what, what to do and what to wear and, and this and that because now there's big money involved. So... Uh, it gets a little tense. It's a little stressful. What would you have learned from the experience of opening up for the bands that you mentioned, like Aerosmith or Jethro Tull? What was it like being an opening act at that point? Well, it was it was an amazing learning experience because a lot of these bands I grew up with as a kid, and now I'm hanging out with them in catering. You know, I'm talking to Joe Perry, or I'm hanging out with Ian Anderson. And that you find out they're just people like everybody else. They're a generation or two ahead of us, but they're just mu musicians that I respect and I admire and I've admired for many years. And it was a real thrill to me to be in the, the, the same room as these people, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm a fan as well. So it was really cool. I would go on side stage every night and I'd watch uh, Joe Perry players or, or, you know, Neil Sean or whatever, all these guitar players that I used to listen to their albums. Now I'm standing side stage with their tech and I'm looking at their pedals and I'm watching them 10 feet away playing. You know, any you ask any guitar player, man, that's a thrill. Is there anything that 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 you would have 
gotten from that experience? Like saw something and thought, wow, I need to think about doing that or anything like that? Absolutely. As guitar players, we, we steal. We, <laughs> we steal and we mimic. You know, I don't mind saying that because that's what we do. There's everything's been, there's so many things have been done in the guitar, but the, everything will never, ever all be done in the guitar. It's an amazing instrument where it, you never run out of things to play. And I love watching other players because even if I watch like a mediocre guitar player in a bar or something, even if he's not that great, if I watch him long enough, he's going to do one thing that I never thought of doing. He's going to play a, a scale or, or do a bend that I go, wow, that's, that's different. I never thought of that. And then the, the great players, you're going to watch them and just watch what they do. And there's, they're always going to do something that I take away from that I'll, I'll run back to the bus and try and learn the lick. Okay, so then comes the second album, which does really well as well. I, I think you've charted four songs or something. So once again, and even the third album did quite well. Um, was that amazing? Like, I, I think that's, you know, like, as I said, I, I can imagine the pressure that you must have felt, but to have that repeated success um, as a guy who kind of wanted to be a musician and, and actually are now played all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, uh, we got so, we got so lucky. Um, I mean, luck is one part of me, but we worked for it and, you know, we had good, so good songs and a, and a great band. And I'm not being arrogant when I say that, but we, we worked really hard to make ourselves a good band and, uh, to, to have the second record come out, you know, even bigger success than the first, you know, with a major label, Everything was working, uh, you know, everything was firing on all cylinders. We had great management, a great label, and just a lot of great people behind us and everybody working really hard. And then the third album came out and same thing, you know, it's just like you put something out and it's platinum, then it's double platinum. It's, it was just an unbelievable ride. And we didn't take that for granted. We were not a bar band anymore now. We're an arena band in Canada. Now we need trucks and buses and we have to get a big light show. And we have to build a stage. It was all my dreams coming through. You know, this is the stuff I used to draw uh, on my on my notebook when I was in grade school. On the back of the book, I would draw a big stage with stacks of marshals and a huge drum kit and big lighting systems. Right <laughs> now, now it's actually happening. So for me, I was not intimidated at, at all moving into the arenas. That's where I wanted to be. I hated the clubs. <laughs> okay, so I've asked this question many times to many different people. I think a song is an amazing thing, and and obviously you write it because it's something that's close to you, and and it's some a part of you. Now you get a hit, whether you thought it would be a hit or not. You're driving down the highway and you hear your song play. What what does a hit mean to you? What is that like? Well, it's as a, as a songwriter, it's an incredible uh, validation. Um, for for what you do you know you're it's like wow if this is you know you're validated this actually could be a living for me and most importantly i wrote something like in my bedroom or in my hotel room six months ago and now it's on the radio and people are connecting with with what i did it's it's a beautiful feeling it's the it's the best in the world it's it's what you set out to do as a, as a songwriter and hearing it uh, on the radio is like it's you know it's something you can't you can't describe it's wonderful it never gets old i wonder how things change over the years 
like if you hear one of your songs like new girl now now versus 20 years ago whatever but i mean let's just say you're out for a drive and you just hear it is it any different a feeling than it was back then um well it's it's a different time now uh, it's not um you know we're i'm a lot older and i've written a lot more songs and had a lot more life under my belt but no if i go in my car now and i hear it on hair nation or something or something i'm like that's cool that's that's very cool because you know we're th what 30 35 years later and the bottom line is they're still playing new girl now and they're burning in love and stay in the light and wave babies is a staple of Can canadian radio anyways and a fair amount in the U.S. That's to me. That's an accomplishment. That's an enduring catalog. And I am so I don't take that for granted. I I love that um, they still play the music because there's a lot of music that you don't you know they don't play again. You know it came out at a certain time, but it doesn't stand the test of time where you don't hear that song 20 years later. But um, a lot of the honeymoon sweet stuff you do, it's wonderful. It's it's pretty amazing, and and then because it and in some ways have a, has a life of its own, right? Like and and other people, new generations hear it. Exactly. And, I mean, it's you know what to me, I have a theory. Like a great song never gets old. It's you know you can listen to the Beatles now, that was you know a Beatles song that's fifty years old, and it's just as amazing and and beautiful as it was back then, because it's a work of art, and just. Uh, you know, why Why shouldn't a young person today love a Beatles song? They loved it back then. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful work of art. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And yeah, you're right. You got a new generation of kids coming up. They don't even know who Honeymoon Suite is. They weren't even born anywhere near where we were out, but they love the music. Yeah, music is, is it's, it, you know, keeps on, it's eternal. I mean, if it's good music, it's just, it's always there. It always find an audience if it's good. Now, on the other hand, are there songs that you've written that you thought were big hits that didn't do well and, and you're kind of surprised by it? Um, that I thought were... Well, yeah, well, it's the songs that are very special to you that you thought had potential. I know, I know. Well, every guitar, every songwriter will, will tell you that, you know, it's like the, the, the quick ones that you just kind of wrote, you know, well, that was your biggest hit. And then there's other songs that it took me a year to write and nobody likes it, you know? Um, but it's it's real special to me. I thought it was great, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why you can't get, you have to have a thick skin as a writer. And I, I work on a song and I try and finish it and make it as best as possibly can and then put it away, maybe play it for some people. Maybe it's not right for the time. Maybe it's not that great, but I will finish this song and make it a complete idea. Then I'll move on to my next song and i don't get i don't get upset because you know as songwriters you have to write probably 30 40 songs before you hit that one that's the lightning in a bottle you know that they can't all be hits they're all special in their own ways but you just, it's a process you have to that one song will lead you to the next one and that might be the one you just have to keep at it right at one point or another, things started to slow down over many years. Um, did the band ever break up? Like, I know you're no, still playing together. You yeah, never did. No, we didn't. No, um, things started to, to fall apart, you know, late 80s, early 90s, um, largely because, you know, we had management problems, you know, the usual whatever um, things and, and, and declining record sales. 
But when the 90s came in and, and you know, grunge, Nirvana and all that, um, through no fault of our own, it, it just killed, it killed the 80s. It killed the melodic rock bands of the 80s, pretty much all of them. And uh, it's, that's what music does. The business is, runs in cycles and it, it goes up and it goes down and it, make, it goes through changes. So it went over to grunge for the 90s, which I wasn't a big fan of, but you can't control that. So Johnny and I just kind of took a step back. Some of the guys left the band and we just did other things. But Johnny and I always stayed together as a band. We never broke up. We just, there wasn't that many gigs to do that made any sense. So we wouldn't play as much, but when we play, we'd get great guys, players in the band and we go out and we, you know, we kept our heads up. We didn't scrounge, you know, we, we, we kept our, our pride and we played good shows, but we just didn't play that many. So there were some pretty lean years there during the nineties, but we always kept working and, and making little albums and, and writing because again, like I said earlier, you don't do this for the money. It's, it's, it's the long haul and I, I don't quit. And here we are. Thank God the music came back around in the early 2000s. Now it seems the melodic rock is back and it's, it's really benefiting us. Did you, did you know when it came back? I used, yeah, after, you know, finally when grunge was over and the nineties was over, um, you started to, to see a lot more of these bands, like for example, Bon Jovi, who never went away. They were always a big band, but they were just, kept on going and you started to see journey and Def Leppard touring again and right. not just touring, like doing major tours and the, the audience was out there. So you've got night Ranger, you've got lover boy, you've got all these melodic rock bands who you just thought were gone and wrote off They're Now they're all out there touring. So obviously people want to be happy and they want to hear melodic rock and music that makes them feel good again. And, and of course, Van Halen and, and all the, the, the great bands, I think, People got tired of the down music of the 90s and wanted to feel good again. That's the way I see it. Did your writing style change at all during that time? It did. We did a record in uh, sometime in the 90s at the height of grunge. Uh, we did a little album called Lemon Tommy. And when I listen back to it now, it's not it's not a great album, but it's a snapshot of, of us during that time. And I can see that I was influenced a little bit by the grunge kind of sound. Um, I got away from the real melodic rock because nobody wanted to hear that kind of music. So I tried to go more in the grungy kind of uh, dissonant vein songs, just experimenting and just, you know, that's what was coming out at the time for whether it was right or wrong. But the, the point with me is just to keep going and writing music. This is what I did then. If you like it, great. If you don't, fine. I'm, I'm moving on to the next thing. So at the end of the day, I was probably wrong to do that. And I won't do that again, because now I'm going to write what I write. And if it's for Honeymoon Suite, it has to have that Honeymoon Suite sound. It's, it's our brand, if you will. It has to suit Johnny's voice. We have a dedicated uh, group of fans, a fanatical group of, of fans, young and old, and they expect a certain sound from Honeymoon Suite. And I don't mind giving that to them. I love that sound. And that's what, it, if we're going to put a Honeymoon Suite record out, it has to pass that test. It can't be anything, you know, what's going on the charts now, because that's that's a dumb thing to do. It has to be our, our brand and, and it pays off. Okay, so we've talked about 
band members coming and going, and I real I realized how difficult it must be to keep a band. But what's the secret between you and Johnny? Like, how is it that you have managed to stay together all these years? Yeah, really, uh, I don't know. I I gotta tell you, man. Like when I first got in this band, I mean, the success was phenomenal, but the type of band that we were, I thought, well, maybe this will last five years, maybe six, seven years, you know, because we were just kind of a melodic rock, popish band, screaming girls and all that. But I knew traditionally that doesn't last, but somehow it did. And with, with Johnny and I, I think, I think that we're very different people, which is good for our chemistry. We're not the same. And we both grew up in the same area, Niagara Falls, St. Catharines. So we both grew up with listening to the same bands and doing the same things and going to the same concerts. So I think we have that bond between us. We come from kind of the same place. He's, his tastes are a diff, little different from mine. But again, the difference between us, I think, is what keeps us together. And we, it's just a mutual respect, you know? We know how to push each other's buttons. We've had we've butted heads many times, but that's how we get things done. We you know we pissed each other off, but at the end of the day, it's not personal, and it's it's business. And what we have, it, it, it works. When it works, it works really well. And if I quit and had to find another singer, that would be a real drag because that's almost impossible. And um, it just he's look you know he's into it and I'm into it. We love touring, we love getting on stage, and I don't question it any further than that. Well, makes sense, but it's it's pretty amazing when you think about all these years and yeah, it's it's a long time man, and a, a lot of history. Maybe we're both just so dumb we don't know what else to do. <laughs> we're just trying to avoid a day job. So <laughs> this is we got a good thing going, and we've got such a history, and a and a we've got so much behind us. It would be a shame to to stop it before it's time to do that. You know, we've got a a huge. Uh, thing behind us and and hopefully ahead of us and we don't take that for granted so so why walk away from that yeah well i mean it's amazing to me the songs that you have and it must be, I, I don't know what it's like to play the same song 30 40 years but when when the song means so much to your audience that you know you hit that first note and they're reacting to it i mean that must be an amazing feeling it is it certainly is after after all this time and it's like i mentioned earlier it's it's newer fans as well and again it comes back to to me um to my dream as a songwriter to one day be on stage and and play that chord and listen to the audience react because when i was a kid i was in the audience and when that band started that song i went nuts so i know i know that feeling and if i've wrote i've written that song that makes people do that i'm still excited by that and it inspires me to write the next song so you're you're in the middle of finishing a, a new album that's been kind of interrupted but tell me about a little bit about the new album well um there's no there's no title uh for it yet we've been working on it for about a year and a half it's being produced by a guy named mike crumpus who's originally from toronto He's a producer, guitar player, a very talented guy. Um, I'd, I'd reached out to Mike uh, a while back, right before the record, because he, um, he worked with me. Uh, I have a daughter, uh, Leah, who's 20, no, sorry, she's 19. She's a singer-songwriter, so 
she was doing her her album a few years back and um i reached out to mike who was living in nashville at the time and we were going down there a lot to write and stuff to maybe work on a song so we did we went to mike's studio and uh we cut a song for leah's record and then from there mike was saying to me at that time he was also starting a new label and he'd always been a honeymoon suite fan since he was a kid because he grew up north of toronto and it, and i at the same time we we started doing demos johnny and i hope looking maybe to do a new record so one thing led to another i sent mike the demos he loved them and he said let's work together so we started we went started going down to Nash nashville and uh and writing and and cutting the tracks and then mike six months ago decides to move to england you know um and we're about three quarters of the way through the record so now we have to go where mike goes so johnny and i had made several trips to england doing guitars and vocals finishing up the tracks and that was in february of this year we'd come back and then the pandemic hit and we'd gotten back just in time so we're about 90 90 percent done on the album but we can't finish it till the three of us can get together whether it's in England or Mike comes to Canada and every day with this COVID stuff, you know, it's such a roller coaster. We're trying to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. But the good thing was that in the meantime, we had enough tracks finished that we've released two singles already, which is terrific because one of them charted and the fans love it and it keeps our momentum going ahead of finishing the record. So I think we're on a, a really good kind of roll right now. Can I ask you, at this stage in your life, what do you expect out of an album? I know you're constantly writing, and you you said you're basically a songwriter, so that's obviously what you do, but what would be a goal for this album? Well, if I was to say to sell 100,000 CDs, it'd be ridiculous, because it just doesn't happen anymore, you know? Right. Um, it's, you know, an album, like I said, before is a snapshot in time of, of where you were in that year or those months. And it encapsulates everything you were going through. And to me, what do I want with this album? It's to me, the lifeblood of a band is a band like us is to keep writing, even if nobody buys the CDs, because you don't sell CDs anymore. If it gets on the radio and people come to the show and hear the songs or, or buy the CD at the show, it's new music and your, your hardcore fans, demand new music every once in a while, as long as you're still you know, playing the hits. But any album I do, especially this one, I'm going to be very proud of it because this is going to be probably the best thing we've done in a long time. And I know it'll get out there and it'll it's going to open doors for us. I, I know it is because there's a huge market still over in, in Europe and other places in the world for classic rock. I hope it gets us into some markets in America. There's also a huge uh, possibility for, you know, sync licensing and, and great music and, and, you know, getting it in TV and film. There's a lot of more income streams now. and There's a lot more opportunities for new music in this digital Internet age. So there's good things. There's good things to do to, to, yeah. that can happen. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing the album. Um, I should wrap this up, but I want to end this interview, not on a downer note, but I know that based on your Skype handle, I know that there's a connection to Eddie Van Halen and, and we lost him yesterday. Can you tell me what he meant to you as a player, as a musician? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still, I'm having a hard time with it. I'm still extremely sad about it. 
Um, I'd love to Eddie's playing and, and Van Halen from, from the first day I heard eruption, you know, when mm -hmm. I was much, much younger. Um, I've, I've always been a super fan of, of his, of his playing. And, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievable loss. Um, it's, he's one of those guys that is just it's always seemed eternally youthful in his attitude and his playing. And you just never pictured him as a guy who would be, you know, gone, you know, mm -hmm. passed away. You thought you, that kind of guy, you wanted him to live forever. And sadly, you know, he didn't. And now it's like such a huge, a huge loss. It, it, it really is. A, it's a big piece of fun that's, that's gone, you know, um, out of the world of guitar playing and, and music. But at the same time, he's left a massive body of work and he changed rock guitar forever. He changed the way I play guitar. And I don't think for one second that I, I want to play like him or I can play like him because nobody can. But he certainly influenced a lot of the things I do. And more, more than his playing, in, just in his attitude and his humor on the guitar. I call it humor. When he plays, it just makes you laugh. He's just, yeah, it's just, it was just fun to listen to him. And I'm sad, very sad. Yeah, me too. Terry, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you and meeting you for the first time. Yeah, well, thank you. No, it's been, it's been a great hang. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.